People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 47 where we go back Back to the the past past. and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday morning on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and by the hoary hosts of Hoggoth. Today this book is pretty much my pick, one of my favorite characters and I thought we would do a uh, little episode on him. What book are we reading today, Chris? We are reading Strange Tales, Volume 1, Number 110, from July 1963. This is the first appearance of Doctor Strange. Yeah. Uh, we got the story title, Doctor Strange, Master of Black Magic, written by Stan Lee, art by Steve Ditko, lettered by Terry Zenix, uh, co- cover art by uh, Jack Kirby, with a cover price of 12 centavos American. That's right. It was uh, no big deal to get this, the very first appearance of Doctor Strange. Maybe one of the uh, most loved B-tier Marvel heroes, you think? I don't know. What what would you call it? I don't know. Uh, He's he's definitely not a, he's not, you know, one of the big guns, but uh, he's not, he's not, he's no scrub either. Yeah, usually when it's time to to go to the second rung, he's one of the first guys called up, but uh, first. He's he's defenders level for. uh, Absolutely, exactly. (laughs) That's that's what he's part of, not The non-hero team of defenders. Uh, But first, as we usually do, we're going to do bios about the creators, and of course, we have two creators here that we have almost nothing to say. Yeah, we have nothing to say about them. Uh, We'll start with the writer, Stan Lee. Stanley Martin Lieber was born December 28, 1922, in Manhattan, New York City. He had Romanian-born Jewish immigrant parents, Celia and Jack Lieber, and he was born at the corner of West 98th Street and West End Avenue, and actually in the apartment. Uh, That was a home birth. He has a younger brother named Larry who would also work on comic books. In fact, he is working on the very comic book we'll be talking about today, but we'll get there. Jack Lieber, trained as a dress cutter, worked sporadically after the Great Depression, and thusly the family moved further uptown to Fort Washington Avenue in Washington Heights, Manhattan. By the time Lee was in his teens, the family was living in a one-bedroom apartment at 1720 University Avenue in the Bronx. He and Larry shared the bedroom, and his parents slept on a fold-out couch. Lee attended DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, as almost every Golden Age uh, comic book (laughs) creator had to do, apparently. And Stanley loved to read and watch movies as a child. His favorite films were those with Errol Flynn. And uh, Errol Flynn's best known for playing Robin Hood in The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938. Uh, he generally played swashbuckling heroic types, uh, you know, pirates and usually the good pirate or whatever. Uh, he was considered quite a heartthrob in his day as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Lee enjoyed writing, and he entertained dreams of one day writing, like many writers, the great American novel. Uh, he would graduate from high school early when he was only 16 and a half. This was 1939, and he would join the WPA Federal Theater Project. Now, the Federal Theater Project was a New Deal program to fund theater and other live artistic performances and entertainment programs during the Great Depression. It was created not as a cultural activity, but as a relief measure to employ artists, writers, directors, and uh, theater workers. So a really uh, a really neat project to have during those times. Yeah, and it also took these creative types as 
workers, not as like certainly you know, not as hobbyists and yeah, weirdos, creator, creative aspirationists or something. <laughs> Uh, now, Lee became an assistant in uh, 1939 at the new Timely Comics division of Pulp Magazine and comic book publisher Martin Goodman's company. Uh, the job he was given, it was, <laughs> despite being a, an assistant to an editor, was not very glamorous. <laughs> uh, in, in 2009, Stan recalled, in those days, the artist dipped their pen in ink, so I had to make sure the ink wells were filled. I went down and got them their lunch. I did proofreading. I erased the pencils from the finished pages for them. Sounds like a sounds like a a dull but busy yeah. Kind of gig. Oh, he probably was definitely busy, but yes, yeah, so basically all those jobs somebody's got to do it, and he was <laughs> right? he was the one. <laughs> now, uh, Stan made his uh, comic book debut with the text story Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge, and that appeared in Captain America Comics number three, cover date May 1941. Uh, he would use the pseudonym Stan Lee, explaining years later that he intended to save his given name for that great American novel he wanted right. to write, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a uh, a real bragging point to uh, be in comics. No. Uh, uh, incidentally, Stan Lee is now his legal name. Yeah, that happened. Happened sometime in the 80s, I believe. But yeah, he is legally Stanley, no longer Stanley Lieber. Uh, that text story, by the way, we did learn on researching, I guess, Captain America, is the first instance where Captain America throws his shield and it yes. returns. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mentioned that too because I'm sure that no one's ever read it because it's a text story in a comic book and no one ever read those. <laughs> no one ever reads those. Yeah, I never did. <laughs> uh, two issues after that, Stan began writing a backup feature, uh, Headline Hunter, Foreign Correspondent. And when Joe Simon, Jack Kirby left in late 1941 following a dispute with Martin Goodman, the 30-year-old publisher installed Stan, who was just under 19 years old, as the interim editor. He'd hold that job and eventually become the comic book division's editor-in-chief as well as art director until 1972. That was the, that was the interim, uh, <laughs> when he would succeed Goodman as the publisher of Marvel. Now, uh, Stan entered the United States Army in, in early 1942, and he served stateside in the Signal Corps, repairing telegraph poles and other communications equipment. He was later transferred to the Training Film Division, where he worked uh, writing manuals, training, fil- training films, and slogans, and occasionally cartooning. It's, that seems to be uh, something a lot of the folks we've right. researched have, uh, have done for the military. Yep. Uh, his military classification, he says, was playwright. Uh, he adds that only nine men in the U.S. Army were, were given that title. Uh, Vincent Fago, editor of Timely's Humor and Funny Animal Division, filled in until Lee would return from World War II military service in uh, 1945. As the uh, 40s wore on and superheroes lost their luster, more and more generalized writing duties fell to Stan, basically meaning that he would write uh, Western romance, sci-fi, some horror stories, uh, which became more abundant in the vacuum you know, created by superheroes. Uh, by the time of the uh, Our Friend the Comics Code in 1954-1955, uh, uh, which nearly collapsed what was then known as Atlas Comics, Stan was practically the only comics writer. And he was kind of tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stan has also spoken before about having to fire pretty much the entire office staff at the direction of Martin Goodman, uh, which he recalls as being not one of his most pleasant memories. Yeah, I mean, here's the guys that he had been in the thick with making comics, and he had to call them all and tell them, we have no more work for you. Pretty much only Jack Kirby and, like, <laughs> a couple other guys remained on on, yeah. uh, on call. And the, the thing is... They didn't really decrease their comics output at the time. You have to think nope. about this. They were still putting out like, you know, 30, 30 shows, titles yeah. a month or something. And Stan Lee's doing them all. And these same couple of guys are drawing. It was a crazy, 
crazy time in the office, but things were about to change. In the early 1960s, the superhero had a resurgence in popularity due to DC Comics editor Julie Schwartz creating updated character models. This would have happened in Showcase number 4, uh, October 1956 cover date, in Mystery of the Human Thunderbolt by Robert Kaniger and Carmine Infantino. That introduced the Barry Allen version of The Flash, who is... I think the current version, I think he is, right? He is, yeah. Uh, more, you know, whatever, the, the Flash, the red, the, red suit, the Scarlet yeah. Speedster. And then in Brave and the Bold, number 28, March 1960, in uh, titled uh, Justice League of America by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, introduced, uh, you know, the Justice League of America. That makes sense. So uh, Martin Goodman directed Stan to whip up a superhero team for what was, at that time, now Mar- Marvel Comics. Stan was ready to quit when his wife suggested he write the story, but in the way he wanted. There was nothing to lose, after all. This resulted in Fantastic Four number one, a cover date November 1961, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and comics would never be the same after that. Stan Lee's sympathetic, realistic characters and Jack Kirby's explosive layouts created a new standard for comic books. Marvel's popularity would steadily increase throughout the 1960s, as Stan and a growing team of creators would introduce new characters on a monthly basis, and one of those characters was Doctor Strange. Yes. Uh, go to the other side of the table here. We got Steve Ditko, born November 2nd, 1927, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Steve is the son of first-generation Americans of Slovak descent. Uh, Stephen Ditko, a master carpenter at a steel mill, and Anna, a homemaker. He is the second of four children. In uh, junior high school, Steve was part of a group of students who crafted wooden models of German airplanes to aid civilian World War II aircraft spotters. Uh, that's that's crazy, huh? Yeah, pretty weird. I, <laughs> I, I guess it's because his father was like an, an artistic carpenter, you know, and yeah. he had the skills and the tools. Sure. Now, upon uh, graduating from Johnstown High School in 1945, he enlisted in the U.S. Army on October 26, 1945, and did military service in post-war Germany, where he drew comics for an Army newspaper. Following his discharge, Ditko learned that his idol, Batman artist Jerry Robinson, was teaching at the Cartoonist and Illustrated School, which would later become the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Uh, He moved there in 1950 and enrolled in the art school under the GI Bill. Uh, Robinson would help Ditko acquire a scholarship the following year. About Ditko, Robinson said that he was a very hard worker who really focused on his drawing, and he could work well with other writers, as well as write his own stories and create his own characters. He was in my class for two years, four or five days a week, five hours a night. It was very intense. Sounds very intense. Yeah. Now, Robinson invited Stan Lee to speak to the class and surmised, I think that's when Stan first saw Steve's work. Hmm, that early on, but uh, he had mm-hmm. a little way to go before he would uh, do the comic we're talking about today. He began professionally illustrating comics in early 1953, drawing writer Bruce Hamilton's science fiction story, Stretching Things, for the key publications imprint Stemner Publications, which sold the story to Ajax Farrell, where it finally found publication in Fantastic Fears number 5, February 1954. So that's the way comics were done in the days, folks. <laughs> Ditko's first published work was his, sec- his second professional story, the six-page six paper romance in Daring Love Number 1, October 1953, published by the key imprint Gilmore Magazines. Shortly afterward, Ditko found work at the studio of celebrated writer-artist Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. 
Beginning as an inker on background, Zitko was soon working with and learning from Mort Meskin, a seasoned comics veteran who'd been part of the legendary Eisner-Eiger Comics packaging shop in the late 1930s and 1940s. Ditko recalled, Meskin was fabulous. I couldn't believe the ease with which he drew. Strong compositions, loose pencils, yet complete. Detail without clutter. I loved his stuff. Ditko's known assistant work includes aiding Inker Meskin on the Jack Kirby pencil work of Harvey Comics' Captain 3D No. 1 in December 1953. For his own third published story, Ditko penciled and inked the six-page A Hole in His Head in Black Magic Volume 4 No. 3, December 1953, cover date published by Simon and Kirby's Crestward Publications imprint, Prize Comics. Beginning with the cover of The Thing number 12, February 1954, and the eight-page vampire story Cinderella in that issue, Ditko would continue to work intermittently for Charlton Comics until the company's demise in 1986. And we'll talk a lot more about that later on. Uh, he first went on hiatus from Charlton and comics altogether in mid-1954 when he contracted tuberculosis and returned to his parents' home in Johnstown to recuperate. Yeah, after he recovered and moved back to New York City, uh, this was late 1955, Ditko began drawing for Atlas Comics, beginning with the four-page There'll Be Some Changes Made, which appeared in Journey into Mystery number 33, April 1956, cover date. From uh, 58 to about 68, Ditko shared a Manhattan studio at 43rd Street and 8th Avenue with noted fetish artist Eric Stanton, an art school classmate. When either artist was under deadline pressure, it was not uncommon for them to pitch in and help the other, help one another with their assignment. Uh, Ditko biographer Blake Bell said, at one time in history, Ditko denied ever touching Stanton's work, even though Stanton himself said that they would each dabble in each other's art, mainly uh, spot inking. The introduction to one book of Stanton's work says, Eric Stanton drew his pictures in India ink, and they were then hand-colored by Ditko. Uh, Steve contributed many stories to Strange Tales and the newly launched Amazing Adventures, Strange Worlds, Tales of Suspense, and Tales to Astonish. Uh, these would typically open with a Kirby-drawn monster story, followed by one or two twist-ending thrillers or sci-fi tales drawn by Don Heck, Paul Reinman, or Joe Sinnott, or Sinnott uh, capped by an often surreal, sometimes self-reflexive short by Ditko and writer-editor Stanley. Uh, they would become so popular that Amazing Adventures was reformatted to feature such stories exclusively. And that began with issue number seven, December 1961. Uh, this is when the comic was re rechristened Amazing Adult Fantasy, which uh, <laughs> might sound more uh, yeah, it has sounds a, strange. Some yes, different but... connotation these days, you know, but no, <laughs> they, they wasn't, didn't really mean that you were going to see boobies back then. No, no, no. Uh, now, this uh, magazine came with the, uh, with the tagline, the magazine that respects your intelligence, <laughs> uh, <laughs> giving an early example of what would later be known as the Marvel method of writer-artist collaboration. Lee said, all I had to do was give Steve a one-line description of the plot, and he'd be off and running. He'd take those skeleton outlines I had given him and turn them into classic little works of art that ended up being far cooler than I had any right to expect. Now, after Marvel Comics editor-in-chief Stan Lee obtained permission from, Martin, from publisher Martin Goodman to create a new ordinary teen superhero named Spider-Man, Lee originally approached his leading artist Jack Kirby. A day or two later, Kirby showed Lee the first six pages, and as Lee recalled, I hated the way he was doing it. Not that he did it badly, it just wasn't the character I wanted. It was too heroic. Lee then turned to Steve Ditko, who created the character Stan had imagined. Ditko said, 
The Spider-Man pages Stan showed me were nothing like the eventually published character. In fact, the only drawings of Spider-Man were on the splash, and at the end where Kirby had a guy leaping at you with a web gun. Anyway, the first five pages took place in the home, and the kid finds a ring and turns into Spider-Man. Ditko then recalled that one of the first things I did was to work up a costume, a vital visual part of the character. I had to know how he looked before I did any breakdowns. For example, a clinging power so he wouldn't have had hard shoes or boots, a hidden wrist shooter versus a web gun and holster, etc. I wasn't sure Stan would like the idea of covering the character's face, but I did it because it hit an obviously boyish face. It would also add mystery to the character. Spider-Man debuted in Amazing Fantasy number 15, it had lost the adult somewhere along the way, uh, mm-hmm. August 1962, in the story, Spider-Man. Though Stan mm. did replace Steve Ditko's cover with one drawn by Kirby, which is one of the more famous covers in comics. Absolutely. And, you know, Kirby's story just sounds so, <laughs> so different. Yeah. Well, you know, it, actually, it was a revamp of a character he created like a decade before for uh, okay. a publisher. That, that's its own little story that I didn't even get into. But, yeah, it's, it does. It sounds wildly different he shot a gun and i didn't even have web shooters. A web gun yeah, yeah. Oof. now in uh, 1965 steve expressed to the fanzine voice of comicdom regarding a poll of best liked fan created comics he says it seems a shame since comics themselves has so little variety of stories and styles that you would deliberately restrict your own creative efforts to professional comics uh, shallow range what is best liked by most readers is that they are most familiar in seeing, and any policy based on readers' likes has to end up with a lot of lookalike strips. You have a great opportunity to show everyone a whole new range of ideas, unlimited types of stories and styles. Why flub it? Uh, Spider-Man began his new series, The Amazing Spider-Man, immediately following his debut in Amazing Fantasy. Uh, Ditko eventually demanded credit for the plotting, that he was contributing under the Marvel method, and starting with issue number 25, that was June 1965, Ditko received plot credit for the stories. You know, he was only given that one line, so yeah. he kind of fleshed it all out. Uh, now, after drawing the final issue of Incredible Hulk, this is the uh, first run of Incredible Hulk, uh-huh. the, the the one that I think we look at as kind of a precursor miniseries now. This was issue number six, March 1963. Uh, Ditko would create the supernatural hero, Doctor Strange in Strange Tales number 110, and uh, here we be. Yeah, and we're going to jump right into the issue, but first we're going to talk about it a little bit. You know, it's actually an anthology issue. It's not mm-hmm. all Doctor Strange. There are three comic stories in there, and in Doctor Strange isn't on the cover. It's the Human Torch uh, on the cover. So that begs the question, what is the Human Torch doing in a Doctor Strange comic book? Well, first of all, it's really a Human Torch comic book. Uh, he began his time as the title's headliner with Strange Tales number 101, October 1962, until issue 135, October na- August 1965. After issue number 114, in November 1963, the title became a split book and always had one Doctor Strange story and one Human Torch story and usually a text story in there, too. Uh, Though The Human Torch and The Thing, who became a co-star with issue number 123, August 1964, were booted for Jim Steranko's Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., after issue 136 of Strange Tales, Doctor Strange would stick around to the final issue of Strange Tales, number 168, May 1968. Yeah, in 1957, Marvel, who was then Atlas, they wound up losing their distributor. So they cut a deal with uh, with distributor Independent News. 
uh, independent news uh, owned and distributed DC, which was then called National Periodical Publications. Uh, this deal significantly limited the number of titles Marvel could publish. This uh, dropped it down to eight titles per month. Uh, it's likely this uh, deal included just you know included comics. Uh, Atlas published a number of magazines and periodicals far more lucrative to distribute. Yeah, I, I, this is really my conjecture, but I th- I have to assume. That's yeah, why they cause, even bothered, because otherwise they would just say, we're not taking any new comics, buddy. You know, Why would like, they? Yeah, yeah, there's not a whole lot to gain from that. Right. Uh, <laughs> that that's just got to be part of the package. Uh, now, and so, comic anthologies made more sense than solo character titles. So you can you know, stick more characters in there, tell more stories. Mm. Uh, the eight title limits snuck up, uh, stuck up until around uh, 1964, when uh, sales of Marvel comics were just too high for independent news to hold them back. Uh, Marvel's output went up by uh, one or two titles every six months, or, uh, six months or so, until right before their contract ended, and they were producing 16 titles per month. Uh, in 1968, Marvel changed distributors to Cadence Distribution and started publishing many, many more titles. Many more titles, so boy. <laughs> that, I mean, that's almost like the Marvel explosion right there. Yep. Um, now, like we said, there are three comic stories in this issue, and we're only going to focus on the one with Doctor Strange. It's really the stories about Doctor Strange and Steve Ditko in this episode, but we're going to go through the other two for posterity because we like to present a complete picture of this comic. So the first story is The Human Torch vs. The Wizard and Paste Pot Pete, written by Stan Lee and Ellie and H.E. Huntley, art by Dick Ayers. Looking through his scrapbook, Johnny Storm remembers the first time he tangled with the wizard. He thinks back to a uh, story from Strange Tales number 102. It was November 1962. The story was called Prisoner of the Wizard by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. Uh, Bentley Whitman was a child prodigy that everyone got sick of, so he became an evil tech geek. Yeah, and then right after that, just literally for no particular reason, Johnny remembers the first time he tangled with Pastepot Pete. Yes, and that occurred in Strange Tales number 104, January 1963. The Human Torch meets Pastepot Pete. Hey, uh, <laughs> by the same creators. Uh, at this time, he's uh, Peter Petruski from Indiana, and he commits crimes with a, get this, paste gun. Uh-huh. Uh, later, he becomes, uh, he would take the name of the Trapster, but pretty much everyone calls him Pastepot Pete anyway. Yeah, that's, a, that's the running gag even up to this day. He can never sure. get a break. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, at that very moment, Pacepot, Pete, and the wizard are thinking <laughs> of Johnny, too. Specifically, getting revenge on Johnny Storm. <laughs> the wizard is in prison, and Pacepot, Pete, schemes to break him out. Once escaped, the wizard starts calling the shots. Uh, the wizard plants a false news story about Johnny Storm as the Human Torch being an enemy spy. Uh, Richard, Sue, and Ben are, are elsewhere doing, you know, grown-up things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they call Johnny to offer their help. Johnny tells him, eh, I got this. Uh, he knows the wizard and pays Papita behind it. Uh, at school, uh, Johnny is shunned because he's a spy. Mm-hmm. Uh, two days later, the wizard sees another opportunity to humiliate the Human Torch in the newspaper. It says, the world's richest man will arrive in town today. Uh, the idea is to rob the guy wearing the wizard's asbestos suit and make it look like Johnny Storm did the crime. But hey, Johnny Storm was undercover all along. I thought that article seemed a little boring and uh, without information. The world's richest <laughs> man. Like, Anything else we could learn about him? Anyway, uh, the wizard and Pastepot Pete, still, they forced him into a trap anyway. It's an airless chamber covered with polished steel mirrors to drive him crazy. Pastepot Pete shoots some oxygen-suppressing paste into the room and glues Johnny to the floor. 
Johnny uses this to make a dummy of himself, then uses a super fire blast to melt his way out of the room. Just, just turns it on at the steel mirrors and just eventually melts them right down. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Wizard and Pastepot Pete are arguing with each other, which is sort of their downfall. I think they, they lose their attention. They watch the fake Johnny not die through a window, and they realize they've been duped, but then Johnny's right behind them and subdues them instantly with a ring of fire. I mean, like, one panel, that's it. <laughs> Later, his name is cleared, and Johnny's beloved at school again, but all these super heroics have made him behind on his schoolwork. Anyway. <laughs> uh, the next story, uh, We Search the Stars, written by Stan Lee, uh, with art by Larry Lieber. Uh, this chapter has not been reprinted, But here is the uh, synopsis from the uh, Marvel Horror Wiki. In the story, a space exploration encounters a race of extraterrestrials whom they believe to be savage primitives. It is only after they leave, however, that they discover that the savages are, in fact, a race of highly advanced telepaths. Ooh, sounds like a sounds real, riveting. A real twist tale. I gotta give it up to Marvel Horror Wiki, though, for having that info. They were the only ones on the internet to even like get, go that deeply into this one story. And it's yeah, I found one... the scan, but it was a. Uh, it's it's about as interesting. Oh, as really? I, I I looked I looked. <laughs> all over i guess i should have maybe uh there were other avenues i could have gone there was also a, a by the way a two-page text story in this issue that i don't even remember the title of and since no one ever read those we're not even going to talk about it <laughs> so now we come to the title the the main event here at least uh in regards to this show and that's dr strange master of black magic this is just a five-page story as such will essentially break down every panel of it no reason not to two-thirds of the first page are a stylized title probably drawn by ditko and a picture of Doctor Strange next to an ancient scroll upon which is written, Men call him Doctor Strange. Never have you known his like. It is a great pleasure and privilege for the editors of Strange Tales to present, quietly and without fanfare, the first of a new series based upon a different kind of superhero. Doctor Strange, master of black magic. <laughs> there's, there's the no fanfare. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Strange looks like uh, Vincent Price, at least uh, the way Vincent Price looked at the time of the Pretty reprinting much. here in 19 early 60s. Uh, he seems to be of Asian descent, but we'll uh, learn later in the series that this is not the case. He's wearing a yellow sash and matching gloves with weird dots dissipating into the backs of his hands. Yeah, it really is kind of trippy. I don't know. I, I mm-hmm. like that as a design. Uh, So, the story begins, one rainy evening, a man is tossing and turning in bed. He can't sleep. He says, no, no, go away, please, please go away. He bolts upright in bed. It's no use, I can't sleep. I dare not sleep. It's that same dream, ever not the same, but why? What can it mean? He lights a cigarette and the match's flame illuminates his horrified face. I can't fight it alone, I need help. I heard the name spoken in whispers. Doctor Strange, he dabbles in black magic. Perhaps he can help me. And then we uh, switch over, and the caption says, "The next morning, on a quiet side street in New York's colorful Greenwich Village." Now, if you don't know, Greenwich Village is an area of Manhattan west of Broadway, bordered by 14th Street to the north and Houston Street to the south. Earliest known reference to the village's name as Greenwich dates back to 1696 in the will of Yellis Mandeville of Greenwich. However, the village was not mentioned in the city records until 1713. From 1797 until 1829, the bucolic village of Greenwich was the location of New York State's first penitentiary, Newgate Prison, on the Hudson River at what is now West 10th Street, near Christopher Street Pier. 
Since the prison was north of New York City proper at the time, being sentenced to Newgate became known as being sent up the river. And that's where we get it. This expression carried over when it was replaced by the new Sing Sing prison in Ossing, New York, which is simply further up the same river. So it's still still applied, still worked, uh, but that's where the phrase comes from. How about that? Now, uh, Greenwich Village has been known as a center of Bohemian culture since the late 19th century. By the time of this issue, the early 60s, Greenwich Village would have already cultivated the beat poets of the 50s and had become the center of uh, the folk music scene that would ultimately foment the, uh, the hippie movement. Uh, the Stonewall Riots, a series of demonstrations over four days in Greenwich Village's homosexual population, were uh, about nine years away at this point. But uh, we just want to set the stage of why Dr. Strange living in Greenwich Village is of note. You know, he's living yes, in kind of a funky, sure. bohemian, you know, artsy part of the city. He's not living on the Upper East Side or anything. Yeah. Anyway, the sleepless guy, who actually never does get named, he bursts through the door into an embellished parlor and greets a bald Chinese guy in a green gi. I'm here to see Dr. Strange. He doesn't know me, but... Dr. Strange knows all. Enter! Suddenly, a tall, brooding figure appears, wearing a striking amulet at his throat. The cold, gray eyes of Dr. Strange seem to pierce the mist of the room like a knife. You know, Chris, I, uh, I knew a Dr. Strange like that. His room was always misty, too, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> the man goes, I-, I had to come. I'm in trouble. Naturally, all who come to me are. Nobody ever calls on Dr. Strange with baked goods or warm wishes. Do you know that? Yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> it's my dreams. Every night I have the same dream over and over. It's terrible. I can't stand it. Continue. So it's the same. A haunted figure, bound in chains, appears. Stares at me. Never stops. Never. Wow, this really does sound like a dire emergency. Doesn't it? A haunting figure in chains stares at you. Mm-hmm. In a uh, dream. Yeah, Dr. Strange <laughs> says, Tonight I shall visit you, and I shall find the answer to your dream. Now go. But how? How will you do it? By entering your dream. It's too bad this is a comic, because if it was a horror movie, we'd have that flash of lightning and feel a thunder at this point. Yeah, maybe a a thunderous organ chord right there. But I I don't want anyone (laughs) to question the legality of entering other people's dreams. I assure you it's perfectly lawful. He's a doctor. It is. It's true, and and, and we, we didn't see him sign away his uh, his rights. That's might right. Too. Uh, now, while while Doctor Strange waits for sleep waits for sleepy time to come, he meditates in his room in front of an ancient incense burner. He's going to pay someone a visit. It is time for me to visit the master from whom all my powers stem. Now, there's a profile of Doctor Strange sitting cross-legged on the ground, while a blank duplicate in his like astral form rises from his body. Yeah, caption says, like a fleeting ghost, his metaphysical spirit leaves his motionless body and drifts away. Being with form or substance, nothing can impede its flight. It drifts effortlessly through the building wall. And in true Silver Age fashion, everything depicted in panel is described by a caption or dialogue. Uh, Now, Doctor Strange's spirit form is indeed floating through the wall of his building and would streak across the ocean towards some faraway land. High into the sky, across the vast ocean, across the continents, conquering all of time and space in its silent flight. Doctor Strange heads towards a pagoda-looking structure built high into the side of a cliff. I'll just let the caption tell you. Until finally, at a hidden temple somewhere in the remoteness of Asia, 
Does he mean uh, North Korea, do you think? I can't think Perhaps. of Perhaps. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> the master says, It is good that you've come, my son. I sense a danger surrounding you. You must be cautious, for my days are numbered, and it is you who will someday take my place in the battle against the forces of darkness and evil. Yeah, no pressure, though. It's all no, good. None at all. Dr. Strange says, I shall heed your words, respected master. I shall try to prove worthy of your trust in me. So be it. Now go, for I am weary. But mark you will. Should danger threaten, depend upon your magic amulet. Couldn't even have time for a cup of coffee. None at all. Dr. Strange came across oceans and time and space. And Not he, even an Entenmann's. You know, this this seems to happen in in comics a lot. People show up and leave like a second later. You know, <laughs> come on. Anyway, now uh, Doctor Strange is back in his physical form that evening, and he's prepared to enter that tired fellow's dream. He says, "You must sleep now and have no fear. I shall be nearby." You know, nothing would make me feel any safer than having some dude dressed like Liberace hanging out in my bedroom watching me yeah, sleep. I, I don't. I couldn't do it. I don't know how much. <laughs> you know. I mean, you mean who's paying who here in this scenario? That's my question. <laughs> the man goes. <laughs> I don't know what it is about you, but it gives the man a feeling of confidence, and uh, we're figuring that that's probably the Fu Manchu mustache because nothing says trust. Yeah. It's, it's him or, or Hulk, the Hulkster, you know? They, yes. Everybody who has him, we love him. So when this guy falls asleep, a pink cloud kind of emanates from his head, and Doctor Strange goes into a trance, and his spirit form leaps into the pink cloud. This obviously, like, uh, the, the manifestation of this guy's dream space, you know? That's how they're mm. expressing it. Doctor Strange encounters the thing that's been scaring his client into sleeping badly. Sort of looks like the ghost of Christmas present from a Christmas carol, right? With yeah, Just wrapped in sure. chains. Basically a hooded figure wrapped in chains. Doctor Strange says, It's desolate here, lonely and foreboding. Wait, someone begins to appear. And meanwhile, in the real world... Yes, that man is going, No, no, stay away. Please, stay away. And Doctor Strange's spirit form confronts this being. Doctor Strange says, You, whoever you, whatever you are, why do you torment him so? The hooded figure answers, He well knows the reason why. I am the symbol of evil. The evil is done. That's why I'm chained. If you don't believe, ask Mr. Krang. Just then, a guy in a green cloak with teased gray hair rides up on a very scary-looking black horse. Mm-hmm. This is Nightmare. He goes, So, it is Doctor Strange. You've entered the dimension of dreams for the last time. Never again shall you thwart me. Nightmare, my ancient foe. You know the rules of sorcery, Doctor Strange. Those who enter the hostile dimension must be prepared to pay for it with their lives. You know, the rules of sorcery also state you can't whistle while wearing a top hat on a weeknight. It's a lot of a lot of weird stuff in those rules, I'm telling you. It's, a lot of small print. You should, yeah. you should read through them. They'll they crack you up. Uh, <laughs> just then, the guy that can't get enough nap time bolts awake while Doctor Strange is still out cold, sitting cross-legged in his darkened bedroom. He's mentioned Mr. Krang, so that's what this is all about. There's Doctor Strange. He must have heard it all. He's in a trance, helpless. It's just as well. He mustn't be allowed to live with what he's learned. 
and this guy retrieves a pistol from his bedside nightstand. And I gotta say, if it was my nightstand, it would have had five defunct cell phones and a stack of superpowers comics in there, pretty much. That's, That's about all. the size of it, yeah. yeah. Uh, from the dream realm, Nightmare and Doctor Strange can see what is happening in the bedroom, and Nightmare taunts him. <laughs> Behold, Doctor Strange! Yeah. <laughs> you may witness your own destruction. Your mortal body is unprotected. Its life is about to be snuffed out. Nothing can save you now. There is yet one who can. Master, I need thee, master. Over at the remoteness of Asia, the master is jolted by Doctor Strange's whining. <laughs> yes, he, he, is, he is brought forward with he calls. There is only one way to help him. And that would be to cut him off and force him to grow up? I think so. Yeah. Through the enchanted amulet, I must concentrate. Concentrate. And while emotionless Doctor Strange is under threat of a gun, the round amulet around his neck opens and reveals an eye. Oh, I'll just let the caption tell it. <laughs> and halfway across the world, the mysterious gold amulet on Doctor Strange's chest begins to glow. Brighter, ever brighter, until it slowly opens, revealing a fantastic metal eye within. An eye such as no mortal has ever beheld, such as no mortal would ever want to behold again. Ah, oh, come on, that's not as bad as Mad Balls. Not, not at all. And suddenly, from that unblinking orb, a blinding hypnotic ray shoots out, freezing the amazed human to the spot as his limbs grow strangely rigid. Nightmare is actually distracted by what's happening in the real world, and Doctor Strange would take this opportunity to escape the plink, the plink, the pink cloud of dreamland. I made it! I'm safe in my own dimension! You've eluded me this time, but I'll get you yet. Doctor Strange's spirit form soaks into his body. Then he gets up and takes the gun out of the still-paralyzed man's hand. I shall relieve you both of both your weapon and your hypnotic spell. Now speak, and speak only the truth. I command you. It's over. You're still alive. That means I lost. Hey, taking it well. The, sure. the sleepless murdering man is clearly remorseful He suddenly stands apart from Doctor Strange And there's a yellow silhouette against a dark blue background Is how he's rendered I, I just wanted to mention this panel Because it's very expressive, but anyway It is, yes uh, The man says I was a fool to come to you I didn't suspect my dreams were caused by the many men I ruined in business Krang was the last of them I robbed them But he couldn't prove it Now, now I confess it will be the only way you can ever sleep again. I, on the other hand, almost fell asleep during the confession, so that's why I'm not a doctor. <laughs> now the uh, final panel is a very unassuming one of Doctor Strange standing and pointing straight up while the amulet beams some kind of light ray from, from his chest. A caption overlays most of the image. It says, Next issue, explore the mystic world of black magic once again with Doctor Strange as your guide. And he would show up the next issue, but then not the following issue, but then the one after that, he would show up for good. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of my favorite comics. I had to have read this, gosh, I, I mean, this would, I mean, I obviously read this in a reprint probably sometime sure. in the very early 90s. I do have the uh, masterworks of Doctor Strange, but I think I saw it before then. And I was just, you know how I am, Chris, I always get pulled to the weird ones. Mm -hmm. And something about this, but really Ditko's drawing is so ethereal. And this isn't the best issue yes. to show it. You just get kind of a glimpse of the nightmare world. But later on, it is like 
it gets wild. It huh? gets incredibly wild, you know. And we'll talk about it later. It looks like a, a drug experience, which is <laughs> very true. Which was very good for the time, but it it doesn't really speak to any of the creators that worked on it, at least you know, at this <laughs> time. So, uh, I, I love it though. You know, I, I think the art does a lot of the work here, though, to you know bring it to heavy life. Lifting, for yeah, sure. I yeah. think so. Uh, not not to impugn the writing, but it's fairly standard origin story stuff or whatever yeah. uh, or whatever you know comic book stuff but uh, I love it I love this issue and we're going to talk more about Doctor Strange including his actual origin which we did not learn and mm-hmm. uh, what else happened with him and wrap up the creators with a uh, big dedication to Steve Ditko at the very end we'll have a lot to say about him right after the break so after securing his phone number, I plucked up the courage to visit his office with my trusty sidekick, Neil Gaiman, the boy wonder, and asked for the chance to meet him face to face. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm outside this building here on West 51st Street, and we've established that Steve Ditko does still have an office here. So I'm going to call him now with the number, which I hope is correct. I might have to go and check it and uh, see if he will speak to me. Oh, hello. Is that Mr. Ditko? Hello, Mr. Dicko. My name's Jonathan Ross. I'm a, a huge uh, fan of your work, uh, and I'm over here from London, England. Would it be possible for me to pop by and say hello to you and visit you at your studio? No? I couldn't entice you in any way whatsoever. I couldn't, there's no way I could entice you. Just to, just to grasp you manfully by the hand and thank you for the many years of pleasure. Okay. Steve, I just wanted to say hello and thank you so much. Okay. Take care, Steve. Bye-bye. Just spoke to Steve Ditko. Essentially told me to off the cough. <laughs> but in the most polite and firm manner I've ever encountered. Hey, welcome back. We are still talking Doctor Strange, and now we are going to talk the origin of Doctor Strange. Uh, Doctor Strange wouldn't get an origin until Strange Tales number 115. This is December 1963 in the story appropriately titled <laughs> The Origin of Doctor Strange. That's when you knew what you were getting, you know? You bought a this comic, you knew what you were getting. Mm-hmm. Says it right on the tin. Uh, now, uh, callous and unusually famous surgeon Stephen Strange goes out for a drive and gets into an accident. This causes irreparable nerve damage to his hands, which ends his lucrative surgeon gig. Uh, Too proud to take a consultant role, Strange winds up on the street and learns about the Ancient One in India, who may be able to cure his condition. He travels to the remote location of the Ancient One, who refuses to help Stephen Strange because he's uh, got some selfish motives behind his uh, request. A uh, snowstorm, however, forces Stephen to stay with the Ancient One until the spring thaw. While there... Strange observes the Ancient One's pupil, Baron Mordo, conspire against his master. Strange decides to dedicate himself to learning the Black Arts to protect the Ancient One, who, wouldn't you know it, was onto Mordo's plot all along. That's right. Everything worked out exactly to plan, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, for a long time, it was Stephen Strange against Baron Mordo. He eventually teamed up even with a demon called the Dread Dormammu. Dormammu. And, uh, you know, these are names that you hear frequently in the annals of Doctor Strange. And we'll talk a little bit more about what happened to Doctor Strange after this initial issue. Uh, as co-plotter and later sole plotter in the Marvel method, Ditko took Strange into ever more abstract realms. 
in a 17-issue story arc in Strange Tales number 130 to 146. That was March 1965 to July 1966. Ditko introduced the cosmic character Eternity, who personified the universe and was depicted as a silhouette filled with the cosmos. Golden Age artist, writer, and writer Bill Everett succeeded Ditko as artist with issues number 147 to 152, followed by Marie Severin through 160 and Dan Adkins through 168, the final issue before when Nick Fury feature moved to its own title and Strange Tales was renamed Doctor Strange. The Doctor Strange solo series ran 15 issues, number 169 to 183, June 1968 to November 69. A typical of that time, they maintained the same numbering of Strange Tales. Uh, written by Roy Thomas and penciled largely by Gene Colan. Uh, Strange would then uh, next appear in the first uh, three issues. Uh, this is December 1971, June 1972, of a quarterly showcase title, uh, Marvel Feature. Uh, he appeared in both the main story, detailing the formation of the superhero team, The Defenders, and a related backup story. Uh, the character then starred in a revival solo series in Marvel Premiere issues 3 through 14. This is July 1972 through March 1974. Uh, in issues 8 through 10 of that, which is uh, May through September 1973, Strange was forced to shut down the Ancient One's mind, causing his mentor, mentor's uh, physical death. Uh, Strange then assumed the title of Sorcerer Supreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Marvel premiere series segued into the character's second ongoing title, Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. This ran 81 issues from uh, June 1974 through February 1987 uh, by Steve Englehart and uh, mostly uh, Gene Colan. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Strange number 14 featured a crossover story with the uh, Tomb of Dracula issue number 44, which was another series uh, being drawn by Colin, and uh, this was a uh, Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman series, writing, right? yeah. So yeah. very convenient, a little uh, connectivity sure. there. Now, the uh, title was discontinued so that the characters' adventures could be transferred to another split book format series. This is Strange Tales Volume 2, issues 1 through 19, April 1987 through October 1988. And uh, he shared uh, the book with uh, the street team heroes, you know, street heroes Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, which I think that must have been their debut, right? I can't imagine they came out, maybe not their instant debut but their series I think they debut, had a mini right? series oh, all I think right. they had a mini series I think they first appeared in uh, Amazing Spider-Man or maybe Spectacular Spider-Man I uh, I love those characters as a kid uh, Cloak and Dagger but anyway that's not what this is about <laughs> Strange was returned to his own series this time titled Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme which ran 90 issues November 1988 to June 1996 the initials creative team was writer Peter B. Gillis and artists Richard Case and Randy Emberlin, with storylines often spanning multiple issues. Strange lost the title of Sorcerer Supreme in issues number 48 to 49. That was December to January 92 to 93, when he refused to fight a war on behalf of the Vashanti, the mystical entities that empower his spells. Strange regained his title in Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme number 80 in August 1995, so all was well. Yeah, the main thing I remember from that series was uh, that they used uh, the singer Amy Grant for a cover. <laughs> it was uh, issue number 15. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it was March of uh, 1990. 
And uh, it's basically a picture of Amy Grant from her CD, The Collection. And uh, it kind of got Marvel into some hot water because I think she is a, uh, I, I don't know that she's straight up, you know, Christian artist, but I think she's she's an artist with faith and uh, having her image over, Doctor Strange. Over the but... master of black arts, yeah. Uh, <laughs> was she in the comic? I don't know. I don't, it, it, might be like a, a, it might be just a character, but it's it's definitely her image on the cover. I see. All right. Interesting. So it might just be a character who might resemble her inside yeah. the issue. I've never read it. I think I've got it somewhere, though. Um, now, Doctor Strange, uh, he's featured in several limited series from this point on. We have Doctor Strange, The Flight of Bones. That is a four-issue series between from February through May 1999. This is part of the Marvel, Light, Marvel Knights brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Strange was a catalyst for the creation of a trio of sorceresses in Witches 1 through 4. This is August through November 19, um, 2004 by Brian Patrick Walsh with art by Mike Diodato Jr. Uh, Strange ran uh, from November 2004 through J- July 2005 by writers J. Michael Straczynski, who seemed to want to write Doctor Strange more than any other character because he crammed him into everything he did. Yeah, up to all this the time. Point. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like his Amazing Spider-Man run was like a was a conduit to write uh, Doctor he Strange. Featured in uh, like for a long time, in the a early bunch, 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is before this is you know before movies, before the Avengers opened up to include everybody. So this Strange was uh, when you saw Doctor Strange, it was important. Um, now it was J. Michael Straczynski with art by uh, Sam Barnes, and they update the character's origin there. Yeah, not not big differences. No. Uh, and Doctor Strange, the Oath, number one through five, that was December two thousand six to April two thousand seven, written by Brian K. Vaughan, illustrated by Marcos Martin. Focuses on Strange's responsibilities as sorcerer and doctor. See, the oath has two connotations there. Very clever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doctor Strange appeared in four graphic novels over the years. One of the first was Doctor Strange Into Shambhala, 1986, by J.M. DeMatteis and Dan Green. Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom Triumph and Torment came out in 1989 by Roger Stern and Jerry Conway. Uh, Spider-Man Doctor Strange, The Way to Dusty Death from uh, uh, 1992 by uh, a bunch of different uh, creators. We have Doctor Strange, What Is It That Disturbs You, Stephen? Came out in 1997 by Mark Andreco and uh, P. Craig Russell. Uh, Doctor Strange spent uh, most of the early 2000s in supporting roles, including, like we've mentioned, a sustained time on Amazing Spider-Man, and he was part of the uh, Civil War event, as was everybody. Uh, (laughs) Doctor Strange was a regular character throughout the 2010 to 2013 New Avengers series by Brian Michael Bendis and David Finch. Uh, In 2015, Jason Aaron and Chris Bacciolo teamed up for the fourth volume of Doctor Strange, which spun off into Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme by Javier Rodriguez and Robbie Thompson, and uh, there was a movie in 2016. All right. And, uh, yeah, and it's it. it uh, yeah, I, I I have a theory that it was so uh, it was so big because people liked saying the word Cumberbatch. Oh, so there's much. no question about it. Yeah, I <laughs> so, definitely a huge. It's draw a fun for word me. to say. Yeah, Benedict. <laughs> so, the whole yes. thing, Benedict Cumberbatch. You know, uh, it's such a fun thing to say. So, so yes, in in 2016, it starred Benedict Cumberbatch. You would never know Dr. his Strange. real name is Paul Smith. I'm telling you. I know it. Uh, so you know, usually, off, you know, or often when we do these shows, we go into a long thing about the you know topic or the type of the character. But the two creators involved here are so monumental. There was no other way than to just mm-hmm. give them as much space as we can. I'd like to say to Stan Lee, 
definitely does and probably will get his he does deserve and will get his own full episode this is not sure. this is this is far from a full bio of, of Stan Lee that that could really go on of all the things that he's done for days but I think that germane to what we're talking about this comic this issue and Marvel comics that I think we Provided some background, so let's uh, wrap him up here. Throughout the 1960s, Lee scripted, art directed, and edited most of Marvel series. Moderated the letters pages, wrote a monthly column called Stan Soapbox, and wrote endless promotional copy. In 1972, Lee stopped writing monthly comic books to assume the role of publisher. His final issue of The Amazing Spider-Man was number 110, July 1972, and his last Fantastic Four was 125, August 1972, cover date. At this point, Stan Lee became somewhat of like a figurehead or a spokesperson for Marvel. He started giving lectures at universities around the country, and he became a staple in these growing comic book convention scenes that by now are happening annually uh, and around the country. Stan also tried to expand Marvel's brand outside of the Four Color Funny Book. Uh, Lee and John Romita Sr. launched the Spider-Man newspaper comic strip on January 3rd, 1977. Lee's final... Oh, sorry? Sorry, okay. Lee's final collaboration with Jack Kirby, The Silver Surfer, The Ultimate Cosmic Experience, was published in 1978 as part of the Marvel Fireside Books series and is considered to be Marvel's first graphic novel. Stan was involved in brokering the deal for the successful The Incredible Hulk television program in 1978, as well as the not-so-successful Doctor Strange TV movie that came <laughs> out the same year, and they had hoped that would be a series, but it was not to be. Yeah. Uh, perhaps tellingly, Stan did not broker any deals for Marvel cartoons in the 1970s. This is some more conjecture by me here, really, but oh, well, he didn't broker the, the deals, but uh, all those cartoons that we know of from like Stan Lee's era, they're from the late 60s. That's the Marvel superheroes, Fantastic Four, the Amazing Spider-Man cartoon. Uh, my impression is he wanted to produce more contemporary adult stuff. Chris could be sure. I, you know I don't see that anywhere but it's he was definitely heading towards live action trying to get films done trying to get television shows done he wasn't staying in the uh, cartoon realm although that is the era that Spidey used to be featured on the electric company on the electric company so yeah. he, he hadn't forgotten you know I don't think he had like abandoned children but I think he I think he saw the future of comics which frankly is what kind of where we are now uh, sure. You know, comics are pretty much for adults, and the movies are more or less for adults. So he was just a couple of decades too soon. Yeah, and the shows are all prime time. So that's it's, right. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. He was uh, he was well ahead of his time. Uh, Stan would move to California in 1981, ostensibly to develop Marvel's TV and movie properties. Uh, it didn't go very well, uh, considering the, the dearth of Marvel product and film and television throughout the 80s. Uh, he was briefly made president of Marvel in 1986, but stepped down almost immediately. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't really feeling the uh, number crunching yeah. <laughs> aspect of it, and you know the loss of creativity because it's you know when you're the president, it's no longer a uh, creative endeavor anymore. Yeah. He occasionally returned to comic book writing with various Silver Surfer projects, including a 1982 one-shot drawn by John Byrne. This was uh, the Judgment Day graphic novel, also uh, illustrated by John Buscema from 1990, the Enslavers graphic novel with uh, Keith Pollard in uh, 1990, and the uh, Parable limited series uh, came out through the Epic, uh, the Epic branch of Marvel, drawn by French artist Mobius. And this was a, uh, this came out in the. I want to say it came out in the mid-'80s, but it was re-released uh, 2012, I believe. It came out, though? It was released in singles in the 80s? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the collection is, came out in 2012. 
Yes. Uh, now, a uh, somewhat seedy lawyer, Peter Paul. <laughs> Peter Paul. <laughs> no, Mary. Peter Paul and, Peter Paul and Stanley. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they began a new internet-based superhero creation production and marketing studio, which is called Stanley Media, in 1998. It would grow to 165 people and went public through a reverse merger structured by investment banker Stan Medley in 1999. Near the end of 2000, investors discovered illegal stock manipulation by Paul and also corporate officer Stefan Gordon. Stanley Media filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in February 2001. Paul was extradited to the U.S. from Brazil and pled guilty to stock manipulation. Stanley, of course, he never implicated in the in the scheme. But it essentially tainted his name going forward. I don't know the specifics. Sure. For but yeah, he, yeah, he he can no, he obviously can't start up a Stanley Media, and I think he's restricted to how he can use his name. It's not a, not a great thing, but uh, what are you no. gonna do? In 2001, Lee Gill Champion and Arthur Lieberman formed POW, Purveyors of Wonder Entertainment, to develop film, television, and video game properties. On March 15, 2007, after Stanley Media had been purchased by Jim Nesfeld Field. Felt, felt. The uh, company filed a lawsuit against Marvel Entertainment for five billion, claiming Lee had given his rights to several Marvel characters to Stanley Media in exchange for stock and a salary. I Jim Nesfeld lost because Stanley didn't actually <laughs> own those characters. I don't know why he thought he did. And uh, yeah, John, June 9th, two thousand seven, Stanley Media sued Lee, his newer company, POW Entertainment, and POW subsidiary QED Entertainment. And Stanley Media lost that one too, but this is obviously take a toll on anybody to keep getting sued. Sure. Uh, the Stanley Foundation was founded in 2010 to focus on literacy, education, and the arts. Its stated goals include supporting programs and ideas that improve access to literate, literacy resources, as well as promoting diversity, national literacy, culture, and the arts. Stanley has his fingers in many pies, and though it seems we rarely get to taste them, a full bio would include much of his tremendous bibliography and probably still only get it half right. <laughs> uh, most recently, Stanley has become an ambassador for comic books, spreading goodwill on comic cheer at conventions and other related events. He also has a cameo in every recent Marvel Comics movie. I know people make a big thing about that. He is in yeah. each one of them. And uh, he married Joan Clayton Bucock on December 5th, 1947, and they had one daughter in 1950. And sadly, Joan passed away just last week on July 6th, 2017, due to complications from a stroke. Yes. Yeah, it came out of nowhere. I was uh, I know. just uh, not expected. Um, let's jump back to the other side of the table. Steve did go. Uh, though often overshadowed by his amazing Spider-Man work, Ditko's Doctor Strange artwork has been acclaimed for its surrealist, mystical landscapes and increasingly psychedelic visuals, which help make the feature a favorite of college students. In uh, 1971, Roy Thomas, who was you know then writer of Doctor Strange, said, "People who read Doctor Strange thought people at Marvel must be heads, you know, potheads, drug users, right. uh, because they had similar experiences high on mushrooms." But dot dot dot. I don't use hallucinogens, and nor do I think any artists do. I would, and I definitely say Ditko didn't. Uh, no, I don't think no. he was that that kind of fella. No. Now, after four years on Amazing Spider-Man, Ditko would leave Marvel. He and Lee had not been on speaking terms for some time, with uh, art and editorial changes handled through intermediaries. Uh, the details of the rift remain uncertain, even to Lee, who confessed in uh, in 2003, "I never really knew Steve on a personal level." 
Uh, Ditko later claimed it was Lee who broke off contact and disputed the long-held belief that the disagreement was over the true identity of the Green Goblin. This was uh, one of the things that was floated out there yep. for a long, long time. Uh, Ditko would say, Stan never knew what he was getting in... Stan never knew what he was getting in my Spider-Man stories and covers until after production manager Sal Brodsky took the material from me. So there couldn't have been any disagreements or agreement, no exchanges, no problems between us concerning the Green Goblin or anything else from before issue 25 to my final issues. Yeah, uh, kind of crazy because this really was like the re- I heard is the reason for so long, but uh, it, yeah. it was like the conventional. Not it was the exactly. conventional wisdom it that was he wanted the story. to. He, yeah. he wanted to make the uh, character he, a, a, a random not, dude, a random guy, yeah. not Osborne. Yeah, that was the thing. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man's successor artist John Romita in a 2010 deposition recalled that Lee and Ditko ended up not being able to work together because they disagreed on almost everything, cultural, social, historically, everything. They disagreed on characters. Mm. Yes, I, I remember hearing another thing where it, one of the things that's often cited is like Spider-Man would be swinging over like a bunch of demonstrators, and right. uh, Dit- Ditko would write that, oh, they're filthy hippies or whatever, and then Lee would come in and script over it, being like, oh, right on, fight the power. I wish I could be with you guys or something. Now, like I that. mean, you know, Chris, we cannot claim to know Steve Ditko or Stan Lee. Oh, certainly not. But seeing the way he's worked with so many people on such a variety, I just that does not ring true to me. Such Doesn't a variety of stuff, and I clearly he, clearly he writes to a script. He can work with people, you know. But uh, absolutely. Anyway, that that we don't know. That's the the answer is we're not sure what caused the yeah, rift. It's just exactly. another one of those stories out yeah. there. Now, a, a friendly farewell was given to Ditko in the bullpen bulletins of the Fantastic Four number 52. This is July 1966. It was probably in most of the books of July 66. Yeah, I would bet. Steve recently told us he was leaving for personal reasons. After all these years, we're sorry to see him go, and we wish the talented guy success with his future endeavors. And speaking of those future endeavors, he returned to Charlton Comics, where the page rates were much lower, but artists had near-complete freedom. We did a two-part series on mm-hmm. Charlton Comics. You can uh, go back and check that out on our feed. Uh, Ditko worked on such characters as the Blue Beetle from 1967 and 1968, co-created The Question from 1967 and 1968, and drew Captain Adam from 1965 to 1967, that was returning to the character he'd co-created with Joe, Joe Gill in 1960. People from this period, they remember him as an affable fellow. We got some anecdotal stuff. Uh, he and managing editor Dick Giordano would play ping pong in the cafeteria after lunch. But Ditko, who had a respiratory ailment, probably resulting from his bout with tuberculosis in the mid-50s, he would beg off after a while. He couldn't play too much. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories. Around Christmas in the mid-1960s, Steve Ditko started putting up a weekly comic page on the wall near the men's room for fun. A sort of Christmas horror story where the elves ate Santa or something. No one can really remember exactly, but it was a funny strip. Uh, He would pin it up Monday mornings, and after a few weeks, people would crowd around the spot waiting for a new installment. It was in full color, and it had around eight parts, and I would love to see it, folks. Sure. Uh, In addition, in 1966 to 67, he drew 16 stories, most of them written by Archie Goodwin for Warren Publishing's horror comic magazines, Creepy and Eerie, most of which were done using ink wash. Yes, uh, now at some point during the 60s, Steve Ditko encountered author, are we saying Ein? Mm Mm-hmm. Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, and then, you know, on to her other works, and uh, subscribed to her objectivist philosophy. 
Uh, without getting into the nitty-gritty, because we don't want to, uh -huh. uh, the basic tenets of objectivism are that uh, reality exists independently from consciousness and that we can know this objective reality using our senses, our senses and deductive logic. Furthermore, the, uh, the proper moral purpose of one's life is the pursuit of one's own happiness and that the only social system consistent with this morality is one that displays full respect for individual rights embodied in the free market, ca in free market capitalism. And finally, the role of art should be to give form to metaphysical ideas so that they can be comprehended, made into objective reality. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's basically the belief that, you know, there is, you know, the world that you perceive, but there is an actual world, which is really contrary, I think, to a lot of philosophical thought that, you know, reality is subjective. But anyway, yes. that was the, that's the big change. Now, this uh, black-and-white belief system crept into some of Ditko's work, and probably more into his work ethic and his increased concern for proper credit and, uh, you know, things like artistic freedom. Uh, some objectivist ideas that were included, uh, they, they were included in the character The Question, uh, though editor Dick Giordano remembers reeling Ditko back from having The Question kill a villain in one issue. Yeah. Uh, Ditko gave his objectivist ideas ultimate expression in the form of Mr. A, published in Wally Wood's independent magazine Wits End. This is number three of that uh, series. Uh, Ditko has been quoted as saying the question is a comics code acceptable version of Mr. A. Uh, Ditko's hard line against criminals was controversial, and he continued to produce Mr. A stories in one-pagers until the end of the 1970s. And even did a couple more recently, but we'll talk about those mm -hmm. when we get to it. Certainly. Uh, now, uh, Ditko moved to DC Comics in 1968, where he co-created The Creeper in Showcase number 73, April 1968, cover date with Don Siegel. Ditko co-created the team Hawk and Dove in Showcase number 75, June 1968, with writer Steve Skeets. Ditko's stay at DC was short. He would work on all six issues of the, of the Creeper's own title, Beware the Creeper, from uh, June 68 to April 69, though Lee, he left midway through the final issue. And the, <laughs> and the reasons for his departure, Chris, they're uncertain. No one really, like, didn't, <laughs> Go figure. didn't feel like, didn't feel like, they wasn't feeling it. Uh, <laughs> while at DC, though, Ditko recommended Charlton staff editor Dick Giordano to the company, who would go on to become a top DC penciler, inker, editor, and ultimately in 1981, the managing editor, I mean, a huge figure at DC, dude, and in yeah. comics in general. Uh, for the first half of the 1970s, Ditko worked exclusively for Charlton and independent comics publishers. He actually moved to an efficiency hotel in Derby, Connecticut, to be closer to the office. Frank McLaughlin, Charlton's art director during this period, describes Ditko as a very happy-go-lucky guy with a great sense of humor at that time, and always supplied the female color separators with candy and other little gifts. How about that? Nice. Uh, Ditko returned to DC Comics in 1975, creating the short-lived title Shade the Changing Man, which ran from 77 to 78. Uh, along with writer Paul Levitz, uh, he co-created the four-issue Sword and Sorcery series Stalker from uh, 1975 to 1976. I, I believe Wally Wood had a part in that, too. Oh, well, he inked it or something? Or? I don't know if they were co-pencils or if Wood inked it. Yeah. Um, and he brought back The Creeper, and that was in an issue of First Issue Special, and uh, did various other jobs for DC, including an Etrigan the Demon backup in Batman Family and Detective Comics during 1979. Editor Jack C. Harris hired Ditko as a guest artist on several issues of The Legion of Superheroes, a decision which garnered a mixed reaction from the title's readership. 
Uh, Ditko also drew the Prince Gavin version of Starman in Adventure Comics, uh, 467 through 478. This was in 1980. Uh, Ditko returned to Marvel in 1979, taking over Jack Kirby's Machine Man and the Micronauts. Uh, starting in 1984, he penciled the last two years of Marvel and uh, Peter Parker uh, and Parker Brothers series uh, ROM. Yeah, I had to throw the Parker Brothers in there, right? Yes. They're, they're all part of that. Uh, in 1982, he began freelancing for independent comics publisher Pacific Comics, beginning with Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, number six, September 1982 cover date, in which he introduced the superhero Missing Man. Mark Evanier scripted, Ditko plotted, and did the art. Subsequent Missing Man stories appeared in Pacific Presents number 1 through 3, 3 October 82 to March 84, with Ditko scripting the former and collaborating with longtime friend Robin Snyder on the script for the latter two. Remember that name. Uh, Ditko created the mocker for Pacific in Silver Star number 2, April 1983. For Eclipse Comics, Steve contributed a story featuring his character Static, not the milestone one, in Eclipse Monthly number 1 through 3, August through October 1983, introducing supervillain The Exploder in number 2. With writer Jack C. Harris, Ditko drew the backup feature The Faceless Ones in First Comics Warp number 2 through 4, that was April to June 1983. Working with that same writer and others, Ditko drew a handful of The Fly, Fly Girl, and Jaguar stories for The Fly, number 2 through 8, that was July 83 to August 84, for Archie Comics' short-lived 1980 superhero line. I remember that. I didn't remember. I didn't know Ditko did anything for it, but I did. Yeah, same here. Uh, In a rare latter-day instance of Ditko inking another artist, he inked penciler Dick Ayers on the Jaguar story in The Fly, number 9, October 1984. Cool. And did, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, Ditko and writer Tom DeFalco would introduce the character Speedball in Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 22, 1988, and Ditko would draw the 10-issue series based on the character. Uh, Steve briefly contributed to DC again in the mid-'80s with four pinups of his uh, characters for Who's Who in the DC Universe, as well as a pinup for Superman number 400. That was October 1984. Uh, in the early 90s, Marvel developed a series of dystopian future titles set in the year 2099. <laughs> and Stan Lee created the iconic character, Ravage, yeah. for the iconic title, Ravage 2099. That, that, that character you just associate with Marvel right away, like the two are synonymous, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't see a pile of garbage without thinking of Ravage. <laughs> um, now, editor Tom DeFalco contacted Steve Ditko about drawing the book and working with Stan again. A uh, Wizard Magazine article from 2002 detailed what would be the final meeting between Steve and Stan, at least up till this point. Yeah. Uh, and, an excerpt follows. Ditko was given a shot to return to the, to, to that top form on the grandest of stages, no less in the early 90s. Oh, wait. No really, less one of those the... greatly written wizard articles here, as you can tell. <laughs> yes. Uh, no less in the early 90s, when while DeFalco was doing a bit of artistic brainstorming for Stan Lee's new series, Ravage 2099. Stan said he'd love to work with Ditko again, so I gave Steve a call, and he agreed to come in and meet with Stan, the editor said. The fan in me was thinking, I'm going to watch history unfold. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in the same room together. Steve came in, very flattered to be asked. The guys started to shake hands, then gave each other a big hug. It was a very warm reception between the two of them, and it was obvious that these two guys were really liked, really liked each other and really respected each other. Stan laid out his ideas for the series. They had a really terrific discussion going back and forth. A lot of Steve's discussions have been fiery, but this one was just so warm and friendly. 
The meeting ran its course and ended with Ditko cordially turning down the project. He just didn't agree with some of the philosophical underpinnings, DeFalco said. Stan thanked him a lot, and they opened the door for future work together. Uh, Steve walked away, and I could tell he was really thrilled to have seen Stan. Lee then popped the question, can you tell me why Steve left Spider-Man all those years again? DeFalco roused from his ultimate fanboy experience, was at a loss for words. No, Stan, I was in high school at the time. Next time you talk to him, why don't you ask him? Lee said, I've always been curious. <laughs> so that's, uh, you want a little game of telephone there to find out what mm-hmm. happened. But yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty cordial to me. It doesn't sound sure. like, uh, but things will get a little bit acrimonious, but I still think they stayed professional uh, later on. Absolutely. In 1992, Ditko worked with writer Will Murray to produce one of his last original characters from Marvel Comics, the satirical superheroine Squirrel Girl, who debuted in Marvel Superheroes Volume 2, Number 8, a.k.a. Marvel Superheroes Winter Special, January 1992. In 1993, he did the Dark Horse Comics one-shot, The Safest Place in the World. He drew issue number zero for the defined comic series Dark Dominion, which was released as a set of trading cards. In 1995, Steve penciled a four-issue series for Marvel based on the Phantom 2040 animated TV series. This included a poster that was inked by John Romita Sr. Steve Ditko's Strange Avenging Tales was announced as a quarterly series from Fantagraphics Books, although it only ran one issue, February 1997, due to publicly unspecified disagreements between Ditko and the publisher. In the late 1990s, in a mini-history published in Robin Snyder's industry publication, The Comics, Ditko admitted jotting down an account of his involvement with Spider-Man in 1966 because he believed Lee was claiming sole credit as creator of the character. Steve wrote, There was no real interest by them and others in whether the concept and claim of creator was was a self-imposed label, a credit, or a claim that can and should be validated. Ditko's validation came in the form of Tisk Tisk Number One and Tisk Tisk Number Two, blendings of prose and pictures released by the artist in 1999 that questioned the factual grounds on which some people, Lee predominant among them, talk, write, and claim that Spider-Man is a one-man creation. Hmm. Lee would respond via an open letter. He says, I I have always considered Steve Ditko to be Spider-Man's co-creator. From his very first panel, Steve created and established the perfect mood for Spider-Man. So adept was he at storytelling that Steve eventually did most of the plotting and illustrations, while I, of course, continued to provide the dialogue and captions. I write this to ensure that Steve Ditko receives the credit to which he is justly entitled. And that only made things worse, apparently. (laughs) Uh, Ditko rebuffed his I always have considered line in another issue of the comics, stating, considered means to ponder, look at closely, examine, etc., and does not admit or claim or state that Steve Ditko is Spider-Man's co-creator. So black and white. Uh, well, um, you know, that, 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 <laughs> and with that, Steve, and with that, Stan Lee said, well, forget it then. Yeah, I tried. Uh, now, the last mainstream character Steve created was Marvel's Long Arm in Shadows and Light Number One. This February 1998, in a self-inked 12-page Iron Man story, A Man's Reach, which was scripted by Len Wein. His final mainstream work was a five-page New God story for DC Comics, Infinitely Gentle, Infinitely Suffering, inked by Mick Gray and believed to be intended for the 2000 through 2002 Orion series, but not published until the 2008 trade paperback, Tales of the New Gods. 
Since then, Ditko's solo work has been published intermittently by Robin Snyder, who was his editor at Charlton, Archie Comics, and Renegade Press in the 80s. Uh, the Snyder publications have included a number of original books, as well as reprints such as uh, Static, The Missing Man, The Maka, and in 2002, Avenging World, a collection of stories and essays spanning 30 years. Uh, in 2010, they published a new edition of the 1973 Mr. A comic and a selection of Ditko covers in the cover series, which is a good name for that. <laughs> sure. In 2011, they published a new edition of the 1975 comic, Wah? Ditko's H series. Yeah, a lot of his self-published stuff is really a weirdly titled like that. And uh, we'll provide a link. I, I don't have the website where you can get this stuff to hand, but you can still get almost all this stuff online. Uh, mm -hmm. And at some comic shops, depending on how much they like Titko, but uh, I'll have that website in the show notes if you're interested to look look it up. Uh, now, there were two lost stories drawn by Ditko in 1978, and they were published by DC in hardcover collections of the artist's work. A Creeper story scheduled for the never-published showcase number 106 appears in The Creeper by Steve Ditko, came out in 2010, that collection. And an unpublished Shade the Changing Man story appears in the Steve Ditko Omnibus, Volume 1, that came out in 2011. And also there was a Hulk and the Human Torch story written by Jack C. Harris and drawn by Ditko in the 1980s. That was published by Marvel as Incredible Hulk and the Human Torch from the Marvel Vault Number 1 in August 2011. Ditko continues to work at a studio in Manhattan's Midtown West neighborhood. He's refused to give interviews or make public appearances since the 1960s, explaining in 1969 that when I do a job, it's, it's not my personality that I'm offering to the readers, but my artwork. It's not what I'm like that counts. It's what I did and how well it was done. I produce a product and a comic art story. Steve Ditko is the brand name. He has a nephew who's an artist, also named Steve Ditko, and according to Will Eisner, Ditko has one son, but this may have been conflated with the nephew, as Ditko's not known to have ever married or had children. And guess what? Steve Ditko won a whole bunch of awards. Here's a, <laughs> here's a short list of them. Uh, 1962 got the Alley Award for Best Short Story, Origin of Spider-Man by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko from Amazing Fantasy number 15. In 63, he got the Alley Award for Best Adventure Hero Comic Book, The Amazing Spider-Man, and the same year for the top hero, Spider-Man. The following year, 1964, the Alley Award for Best Adventure Hero Comic Book, The Amazing Spider-Man. 1964, Alley Award for Best Giant Comic, The Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. 1964, Alley Award for Best Hero, once again, Spider-Man. That's right, and it's going to be a three for here. we got 65, <laughs> Alley Award for Best Adventure Comic Book is Amazing Spider-Man, and the Best Hero is Spider-Man again. Hey. In 1985, he got the Eagle Award, Roll of Honor. I don't know what that is, but it sounds important. Sounds very important. Hope he got a medal with that one, too, it sounds like. <laughs> now, in 1987, Ditko was presented a Comic-Con International Ink Pot Award. Ditko was inducted into the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1990 and into the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame in 1994. And in 2015, the Inkwell Awards Joe Sinnott uh, Hall of Fame Award as well. And right about now, you probably forgot that we ever did read a comic book because we've talked. What did we read? We, it's right. You know, a little something about <laughs> we read Spider-Man, right? Doctor Strange, Spider-Man was, I don't know <laughs> what was going on. Human Torch showed up at one time. Uh, but we just want to say, you know, we, when we go through, when we research these, uh, you know, figures in comic books, we do our best to prevent, uh, present as even-handed a look at them as we can sure. without so much hyperbole. And there's a lot surrounding Steve Ditko. 
uh, I just want to, you know, Chris, you'll weigh in in a minute. I want to give my opinion on the matter of like, you know, there was that BBC documentary where that guy that went and knocked on his door. And you uh, see Jonathan Ross. Yeah. Jonathan Ross, exactly. And you see on the internet now and again, you know, I went by Ditko's office and no one answered, or I went by and he told me to go away, or even sometimes I went by and I talked to him for five minutes. Yeah. Uh, he seems like a, a very normal guy who doesn't want to be hassled. I'll tell you, if you come knock on my door unannounced, you're probably <laughs> you're probably going to get me in a very bad mood too. So don't be, you know, don't think it's just like limited. Um, he he seemed, you know, he's he's worked continually with. Pretty much every publisher in comics, mm-hmm. you know, that at no point was he ever blackballed by a publisher where they wouldn't give him work. Uh, you know, I think he just has a strong ethics that maybe is unusual code, yeah. in commercial art, though. You know, I, I think a lot of times in comic books, these guys, they just, you know, take what they get and they don't get upset. And I think that he has his own view on it. But personally speaking, I wish people would leave him alone. Stop, stop knocking on his door. You know what I mean? He's yeah. made it clear. He... He can be reached, right? Because people are giving him work, so it's not like they're mm-hmm. like, sending it by carrier pigeon. Leave the guy alone. He's not a young guy anymore, besides, you know. So uh, sure. leave him alone. He wants his work to speak for itself. Let it do that. And when you look at his work, you, what you see is ex- variety. You know, you see mm-hmm. from funny animals to Mr. A and everything in between. You know, this idea that it's this objectivist body of work is i think absolutely erroneous uh you 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 go you weigh in on that too chris (laughs) well i I mentioned it off the air but it's uh, i think a lot of people have the inch deep mile wide view of ditko where it's it's all about the objectivism and they they refer to him as though he's a hermit where i mean he's working in manhattan yeah it's hardly hermetic (laughs) i mean it's uh, he doesn't live in that where he works so he he commutes he has to commute he has to interact with people every day, you know. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. He's, so I uh, think it's it's very it's short sighted and it's uh it's very uh reductive to uh to just describe him as uh, as Randy and, and hermetic and because uh, yeah. it's that's just he's not hermetic and you know the Randian stuff is it might it might show its face in some of his work but. Like we've seen here, he can definitely work from a script. He works with, he collaborated, and uh, it's not something that makes its way into every single thing. And I think that's why a lot of the times he seems to just vanish is because maybe he wants to keep it from doing that. Possibly. And that's, you know, conjecture, of course. But yeah. as, as you go along with the something. character, you might, you know, instill sure. more. Because I, like I said before, I think that when he cottoned on to Ayn Rand, it more influenced his person not his work as much yeah know, or as his, his yeah his, his commercial artist, work yeah. is still commercial work and he and he's able to do that i mean like we said the last character he created was the unbeatable squirrel girl or just squirrel yeah. girl in his time that's got to be one of the most apolitical characters you ever thought of. <laughs> i mean it's like a joke so initially yeah uh i guess yeah you gotta get somewhat <laughs> of a point under his under his watch it was uh, yes. just a mutant girl with a weird tooth silly powers but anyway, so that's really, this became our bio on Steve Ditko, and uh, definitely a guy that deserves a lot of accolades and, uh, you know, probably a full episode of his own if we can ever mm-hmm. dig it up. But this does give you all the hits. If you have any thoughts on Steve Ditko, Stan Lee, or even Doctor Strange or Marvel Comics, anything we've talked about this episode, <laughs> feel free to write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mill history. And we're on Twitter at cosmic T-mill. I'm on Twitter personally at Reggie Reggie. 
in Anime Days Comics. You can read our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. We do reviews, uh, usually of the Young Animal books, and I do a handful of other books, and Chris does Teen Titans. And there's uh, daily writings at Chris uh, is on infiniteearths.com, where Chris reviews a DC comic every single day of the week, seven days a week. Uh, they run the gamut. They could have come out as recently as a few months ago or as old as the 60s. Uh, I think that's, what, what's your oldest comic on there, do you know? I think 57. 57, but theoretically yeah. it could go back to uh, 36 if you wanted. Sure, if, if, you, I, if I can get my hands on it, yeah. You can get your hands <laughs> on that on that first DC comic. My suggestion is you turn around and send it right to Sotheby's and don't put your oily fingers all over the damn <laughs> thing. Uh, but yeah, you, you got to go check it out. I got to say, uh, I don't know if this doesn't matter to anybody. I've been real busy this week. I have not been able to read them, but I, I always take time to at least see a couple. He, he reviews, Hi. Chris reviews a... Uh, a lot of the, the the silly stuff that I like to look at, you know, you've, you've, you've found a lot of great stuff recently. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? Well, we're talking about writing to us, and uh, we've got a we've got a bunch of letters we oh, uh, right. haven't Sorry. formatted into the uh, script yet. Uh, we've been we've been trying to do it every week, and we just always come up a yeah. little bit late. Um, and also, we're talking about writing us. Don't write to Steve Ditko. Because oh, yeah. you're ruining it. Don't don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> people so the people have mentioned that they've gotten handwritten letters back from Ditko. Uh-huh. Once social media came around, they shared them, and then all of a sudden, everybody's writing to Steve Ditko. I mean, he, killed he, it. He probably has to bribe his mailman not to like not to deliver. Neck, yeah. Uh, or like not to deliver. Yeah. And then and then people get mad. And then he wrote back a handwritten letter, and, and I've never read anything that I thought was cruel by him. But he no, wrote, he wrote to back to someone curtly saying, please yeah. don't write to me. You know, I don't want to get yeah. into this, you know. And it was, of course, posted everywhere as, like, look at how mean Steve Ditko is. It's just like, yeah. leave the guy, you know, if he, left, leave the dude alone. if he left you a P.O. box and an email address, that's one thing. But he has, he's made it clear he doesn't want to be bothered. So, yes, folks out there, Ditko fans, as Chris and I are, leave him alone. <laughs> uh, you know, he will eventually. There will be. He will depart this mortal coil, and I'm sure people will have a field day sifting through everything he's owned. But until then, oh, I'm sure. Enjoy the work to hand, and this uh, yes. it's not a difficult thing to do. But if that's all we got from this week, Chris, I think I'm gonna tell everyone to keep it on the treadmill mystically. See ya. Oh, the things that I've done to pay my bartend. After I broke my hands So I took a trip to the Himalayan mountain In hopes the ancient one could mend me Darling, tomorrow he had different plans Now instead of Chianti, it's Vishanti for me, baby. You call me Steven. Almost just call me straight.